of strong hymns in the minor key. I'm a minor key guy. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Blessed Father, we earnestly ask of you, reopening your word, to hear it expounded, proclaimed. We pray, O oh God, that it will not be heard by any of us in vain. We pray the Holy Spirit, through the mediation of the Son and on account of the Son's merits, will greatly accompany both the preaching and the hearing of your holy word, our great Holy Father. May it run and be glorified in our very midst, in this moment in time. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I do invite you to open up God's word to the gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew. So today and next Sunday, we'll be out of John's Gospel for just a brief moment. And as the Lord is pleased, we'll be right back into John chapter 9 that we just started last week. But Matthew chapter 13, we're going to be looking today at what I've entitled, Do Not Despise the Day of Small Things. Do Not Despise the Day of Small Things. Verses 31 to 33 of Matthew 13. We read this. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour Till it was all leavened. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, sufficient word of the living, eternal God. One of the most common and saddest traits of fallen human nature is to judge things by appearance. This is done by forming hasty opinions of people or circumstances, either for good or evil, by merely looking at the outward appearance. Our Lord Jesus himself warned us against this kind of judging in John 7 and verse 24 when he declared, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. One of the implications of this command is that not everything appears as it seems. Until we have all the facts, we should never rush off making a final judgment. Appearances can deceive us and more than often they do. In addition to this, however, Jesus makes a clear distinction between what he calls right judgment versus judging by appearances. This distinction is to make it unmistakable for us that 
There is nothing right about making judgments on the sheer shallow basis of what we alone can see. According to Proverbs 18 and verse 13, this kind of judging is folly and shame. And the reason it is folly and shame is because we are guilty of prejudging a matter without having the sufficient grounds to make a truly honest, qualified assessment of what is really happening. This is what happened to Christ and why he responded with his warning to not judge things by appearance. In John chapter 7, the Jews, if you remember, had condemned Jesus and denounced him as a lawbreaker because he had done a work on the Sabbath day. By both their perverted ideas over Sabbath keeping combined with their misconceptions about Jesus, they in turn regarded Christ to be a sinner. So then in answer to the misjudgment on the part of the Jews, Jesus therefore declared, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. But of course, as I've said, this kind of judging is all too natural and typical of fallen human nature. In fact, even in God's own people, we have the tendency, the propensity to judge things by appearance, especially when it comes to the work of God itself. One great example of this is from the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10, God spoke by his prophet to the people of Israel who were complaining over the size of the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And to those making this complaint, here's what the Lord said through Zechariah. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The historic context behind these words centered around the Jewish exiles who had returned to Jerusalem after their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Their first great priority in establishing themselves again in Jerusalem was the rebuilding of the walls surrounding the city and most importantly, the rebuilding of the temple. But when the temple began to be reconstructed, it did not have the size and beauty as the original temple which was built under King Solomon. Therefore, to the Jews who remembered the grandeur of Solomon's temple, they began to murmur and complain over how small and insignificant the new temple looked they became guilty of judging by appearances. Due to the small size of the new temple, they could not possibly imagine that this was God's doing. How could God have a hand in something so small like this? Thus, when we come to Zechariah chapter 4, God has a word of encouragement and rebuke for his people. The word of encouragement was to his chosen builder, Zerubbabel, whom he assured that what he was building was not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That was a direct word to Zerubbabel. In other words, in spite of how unbelieving and prejudiced the people were in reaction to the new temple, God was letting his precious servant know that what he was undertaking was in fact God's own plan and purpose. God was in the building of this puny temple. This was his doing. But to the rest of the people, the Lord gave them a backdoor rebuke. And this is what we have just read in verse 10. 
The implied rebuke is simply this. Do not despise the day of small things, but rejoice in such a day. For this day is God's doing, and it will be greater than even the days of Solomon. In other words, God was saying, do not judge by appearances. As God's people, we must never think that because something has such a small beginning that it cannot last and grow and have a glorious end. God may begin his work in the smallest of numbers in a no-name place with no-name people. I don't know who I could even be talking about here, but, but we must never despise such a work by thinking this will come to nothing. To think like this, beloved, is to judge by appearance. Moreover, it is to disregard who God is and what God alone is capable of when he takes the smallest things and turns them into glorious works of his kingdom which spread an influence that actually reaches the world. Well, with this in mind, I want to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 13 where our Lord Jesus Christ is engaged in giving a series of parables which teach on the nature and operations of God's kingdom in the world. There are eight parables recorded here in total. And this morning, I want us to consider two, only two of these eight parables, which are found in verses 31 to 33. But to appreciate where these parables are from in the larger context of this chapter and the connection they make in the flow of what Jesus is teaching, we have to fall back to the first two parables that open up Matthew chapter 13. In these first two parables, Jesus gives us the reality of how things are for his kingdom in this fallen world. First, there is what we might call the reality of response. The reality of response. That is how the world responds to the word of God as it goes forth and is preached to others. This is the parable of the sower. And from this parable, we learn that there are four different kinds of responses to God's word. But of these four responses, only one, just one out of the four, is a saving, converting response. So it appears, it appears that very few sinners become believers in Christ, while the majority remain unbelievers, perishing in their sin. The second parable Jesus gave exposed the reality of the devil's work among God's own people. This is the parable of the weeds, the parable of the weeds. And from this parable, we see that wherever God is at work, the devil will be busy working in the same place. And the devil's main business is always to counterfeit God's work. So then based on this parable, Jesus taught that wherever he plants his people in the world, the devil will plant his people there as well. But those whom the devil plants will not be easily distinguished from God's true people. Why? Because they are counterfeits of the real thing. Now, at this point, following these, two, these first two parables, we have to imagine that for our Lord's first disciples who heard these parables, they could not have been very encouraged. I mean, really, honestly. The work of God's kingdom in the world based on these first two parables would no doubt cause great discouragement in the disciples. How could God's kingdom survive and last 
If so many people are rejecting Christ and then allowed to mix and mingle with God's people as false believers, this would have been a burning concern on the hearts of the disciples after hearing these first two parables. Moreover, when you combine these parables with the already existing reality that the Jewish leaders had shown nothing but opposition to Christ, and even further, Jesus' own influence on the people didn't seem to be going very far either. The disciples only numbered 12 men outside of a larger number that would eventually leave Christ. And next to them, there were a few women who ministered to their needs. So by and large, our Lord's earthly ministry at this point, it did not look very promising. It really didn't. If judged by mere appearances, his true followers were very few while the multitudes that followed him were only there to see a miracle or be fed. And on top of this, there was the looming vast presence of the ungodly Roman Empire that was certainly not in support of what Christ was doing. Hence, for the disciples to now hear these two parables about the work of God's kingdom, which will not win many people and be infiltrated by the devil's servants, they had to be wondering can Jesus and his small band of followers really make a lasting difference in the world? I mean, what is this all worth? Well, obviously sensing this kind of concern in his disciples, Jesus followed the parable of the sower and the weeds with two more parables that would be a boon of encouragement to his true followers. In verses 31 to 33, we have recorded the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. These two parables go hand in hand because they both teach the principle that small things can have far-reaching effects. Small things can have far-reaching effects. But although these parables speak to the same principle, they come at it from two different angles. In the parable of the mustard seed, our Lord centers on the outward effect of God's kingdom in the world. And in the parable of the leaven, Jesus gives us a picture, a picture of the inward effect of God's kingdom in the world. Let's consider each of these now in turn. Notice first the outward effect of God's kingdom in the world. Look with me in verses 31 and 32. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Once again, our Lord chooses to illustrate the work of God's kingdom from the world of agriculture. But this time his focus is on a particular kind of seed planted by a farmer. It is the mustard seed. But what is so peculiar about this seed, which our Lord emphasizes, is that it is the smallest, the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Now, when Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, please understand, he does not mean that nowhere in the world was there a seed smaller than the mustard seed. That's not what he meant. But for seeds which produce garden plants in first century Palestine, the mustard seed was in fact the smallest seed. However, despite its minute size, it grows larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree which has been known to reach heights of 8 to 12 feet. But of course, the main point our Lord is making about the mustard seed in this parable is to contrast its small beginnings 
to the mature majestic plant, it becomes being larger than all the garden plants. And, and Jesus main, maintains that, he says, this is like the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does he mean? That this is like the kingdom of heaven. The central lesson Christ is teaching us in this parable is that despite how small and insignificant the kingdom of heaven may appear in its beginning, yet one day it will grow into a large body of believers. In fact, the kingdom of heaven will be so vast in the world that the birds of the air will come and make nests in its branches. These closing words of the parable actually refers back to the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 4, 12 through 22, King Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, has a dream in which he sees a large tree in whose branches the birds of the air live. Daniel's interpretation of this is that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom had grown until it reached the sky and his dominion extended to the distant parts of the earth. That is, it included many nations. Well, the same explanation applies here in our Lord's parable to which his disciples would have made the parallel to Daniel being very familiar with this account. The kingdom of heaven will grow until it includes all peoples, nations, and men of every language. Moreover, in this figure of the birds of the air making their nests in the branches of this garden plant that's become a tree, we have to also see the idea of protection, safety, refuge, and sanctuary, which this tree provides for the birds. Hence, as a comparison to the kingdom of heaven, the work of God's kingdom through his church will serve as a mighty source of protection and benefit to the nations. On this point, consider how one writer fans this out in application. When Christians live in obedience to the Lord, they are a blessing to those around them. Individual believers become the source of benediction to nations. And with all their faults, those nations of the world who have been so influenced and who have recognized God's sovereignty and have sought to build their laws and standards of living on his word have proved a blessing to the rest of the world in economic, legal, cultural, and social ways, as well as spiritual and moral. It is from the teachings of Scripture through Christian witness that high standards of education, justice, the dignity of women, the rights of children, prison reform, and countless other so such social benefits have come. Whenever the gospel of the kingdom of God is faithfully preached and practiced, all the world benefits. So the parable of the mustard seed is a tremendous encouragement for the church. In spite of our small beginnings, in spite of how few people may respond to the gospel, and in spite of whatever devilish op opposition we may face, yet God's kingdom will grow and prosper. His kingdom will grow and prosper. What did Jesus promise in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18? Do you remember this, our Lord's promise? Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus said this, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Let's muse a moment on those words. First, who is building the church? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Lord. The church, therefore, is not the, is not the work or the invention of man. 
The church is not the institution of man. Its origin and preservation and prosperity is governed, sustained, and kept by the sovereign Lord of the universe, who is God's eternal Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. He is the head of the church. He is the builder of the church. He said, I will build my church. Second, shall anything overcome the building of Christ's church? Again, based on this text. Well, the answer is no. No. In fact, not even the gates of Hades shall prevail against it. Well, what does this mean? What are the gates of Hades? The gates of Hades is, is the power of death. It is the power of death. Therefore, when it comes to building his church, Jesus is assuring us that nothing will stop the growth of his church, not even death itself. Think about this. While one generation of Christians may pass from the scene of history through death, yet there will be another generation that shall come forth. Why? Because Jesus is building his church in every generation. All whom God the Father gave to his Son to save are a people he has redeemed by his blood. According to Revelation 5, 9, from every tribe and language and nation. This is why at the end of Psalm 22, in verses 27 to 31, we see that the fruit of Christ's saving work on the cross is all the ends of the earth. Turning to the Lord and all the families of the nations, worshiping before him. Thus, there will never be a generation of people from which Jesus is not calling to himself sinners for salvation. Christ is continually building his church and growing his kingdom so that when he returns, it will be said, as recorded in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Or to put this in the words of Habakkuk 2, 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So then the parable of the mustard seed is not just another parable, but it is a prophetic promise. A promise of our Lord that his kingdom, his church will grow, it will expand, it will extend to all the nations of the earth. No force, nor opposition, whether human or demonic, shall stop the growth of Christ's kingdom. His gospel will penetrate every corner of this world, despite how spiritually dark and grim those places may be. And it is because of this fact and promise that we should remain faithful and persevere in our little tiny corner of the world in this ridge and valley region of the Appalachian Mountains on this little Appalachian foothill. God's kingdom is working right here. Right here. Christ is in our midst and he's building his church right here even. And this parable of the mustard seed, it reminds us of that. It encourages, it greatly encourages us of this. So even though we may be living in the day of small things, yet we must not give in to cynicism or discouragement, believing somehow that the gospel will never make a lasting impact. 
Such an attitude, beloved, will cut the nerve of our resolve. It'll, it'll weaken our determination to spread the gospel even here. And so we must never give in to that. We must let the parable of the mustard seed encourage us to keep pressing on in the work of God's kingdom. Our beginnings may be small, but by God's power and purpose, they are slowly spreading and influencing a multitude of people for the sake of the gospel. God's kingdom will grow and make progress because it's God's kingdom. It's not my kingdom. It's not your kingdom. This is the Lord's kingdom. And this kingdom growth and progress will be a benefit, not just to us, but to all who are affected by it. Such is the hope and consolation behind the parable of the mustard seed. But from the outward effects of God's kingdom in the world as seen by the parable of the mustard seed, let's now turn our attention to the second parable in our text and notice the inward effects the inward effects of God's kingdom in the world. Look with me at verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Jesus now changes his parable picture from agriculture to the common Palestinian home where a woman is baking bread. In this short parable, our Lord gives us a snapshot of a woman who takes a piece of leaven, which would have been last week's dough, and mixes it with a new batch of dough so that it could ferment the new batch and make it rise. Now, from this picture, we need to pay attention to the fact that Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like... It is like the little piece of leaven, which the woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like that little piece of leaven. So like the parable of the mustard seed, in this parable, the kingdom of heaven is being compared to something, something small, which grows and has a far-reaching effect. But there's one difference between this parable and the parable of the mustard seed. The parable of the leaven centers on the inward effects of God's kingdom and how the fruit of those effects influence everything around it. Let me say this more plainly. The parable of the leaven is a picture of one life, one life which has been converted to Christ and how that one life influences and permeates everything around it. The leaven represents the kingdom of heaven, which is the rule and reign of Christ. And when Jesus' rule and reign enters our lives through conversion, everything about us is affected. The rule and reign of Christ ferments, as it were, in our hearts, minds, affections, words, and actions, till it is all leavened. This means that every sphere of our life, from the church to family, friends, school, work, even at play, everything that we are, everything we come in contact with, is fermented by the rule and reign of Jesus Christ over our lives, so that, so that this Listen, this one little life 
which has been converted to Christ will have the power to permeate and influence many other lives for the sake of the gospel and the spread of the kingdom. Observing this fact, one writer said, the smallest part of the kingdom that is placed in the world is sure to have influence because it contains the power of God's own spirit. The influence of the kingdom is the influence of the king, of his word, and of his faithful people. And this is the central lesson Jesus is teaching us from the parable of the leaven. Small things can have great influence. Small things can have great influence. Don't ever underestimate the effects of one life, which has been saved by God's grace, indwelled by God's spirit, and justified by God's son. To those first few disciples of Christ, their lives would be used to turn the first century world upside down for Christ. No matter where they went and traveled, their lives permeated others with the power of the gospel. We also see this same permeating gospel influence, influence throughout the history of the church. Martin Luther in Germany, John Calvin in Geneva, the Puritans in England, George Whitfield, colonial America, William Carey in India. What each of these lives and so many more demonstrate is the truth of the parable of the leaven. As God brought these sinful people to saving faith in Jesus Christ, transforming them from the inside out, their words, actions, and affections under the rule of Christ would have eternal effects on their generation and beyond. And how could this be? It is due to this. Their influence was nothing less than the influence of Jesus Christ himself. It was the influence of Christ working through his people, leavening the world with his word and power. But let's make this personal. What about us? What about us? Does the parable of the leaven apply to every Christian? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. What about the parable of the mustard seed? Is that applicable to every Christian? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Listen very closely. The smallest and most insignificant people in God's kingdom can have the most powerful and lasting effects on the world for God's glory. It doesn't matter how old you are or where you come from or how educated you may be or how much or how little money you may have. All of that's really very irrelevant. It's irrelevant to God using you for his kingdom. The Lord may never choose you to be the next Martin Luther or William Carey. So what? So what? If God has saved you by his grace in Christ, then you belong to him and you are a part of his kingdom to be used by his design to spread his name within the circle of people and places that his providence has planted you. So wherever your life is, that's where God has placed you. That's where he's placed you. And he is purposing for your life that belongs to him to make an impact on that 
corner and place and part of the world where he has you. To say it another way, as Christians in our little corner of the world, our influence matters for the purpose of extending and expanding God's kingdom by his grace and power. Yes, our influence matters to that end, to that end. And this should be both encouraging and challenging, encouraging and challenging. The encouragement is, of course, how God can take something so small like us and use our lives for the growth and progress of his kingdom in the world. Therefore, we should take great heart in the fact that, that what we are doing here in St. Clair, Alabama, and also sort of in Blunt County, too, because the county line runs right in the middle of the cemetery out there. That's how close we are. So St. Clair and Blunt. But what we're doing here is a work which will echo throughout eternity because it is the fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose. That's what it is. That's the encouragement. What we're doing here is not in vain. No, this is for God's glory. Christ is here. Christ is working. Christ is building his church. Right here. On this of many Appalachian foothills that bleed down into Alabama and all end in Birmingham. But there's a challenge here for us as well. The challenge in this is that we must be very careful to maintain a godly influence within the circle of people and places where God has planted us. You see, here's where the rub does come in. And you just thought you were going to get away with not being convicted today. We must remain true to who we are in Christ as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's the challenge. We must remain true to who we are in Christ as the salt of the earth, light of the world. You see, the promise of these parables regarding the growth and expansion of God's kingdom, listen, it does not rule out the believer's responsibility to live a holy life. A faithful, obedient life lived to the glory of Jesus Christ matters. It matters to the progress and permeation of God's kingdom. It does. These parables, therefore, should provoke in all of us as Christians an urgency and eagerness to live our lives in such a way that we can be used and spent for God's glory in the most effective, fruitful, and productive manner. So then as we close our study of these two parables, that of the mustard seed and the leaven, let us be consoled and comforted by the fact that God's kingdom is always at work and making progress which will reach all the nations. And we're part of that work. We're part of that work right here. At the same time, however, may these parables be a means for our sanctification. Make this very personal, that, that, that we will grow in greater faithfulness and obedience to Christ so that our lives will, be more effect, will more effectively ferment everyone and everything within the circle of our influence for the sake of Jesus Christ. Again, that's the challenge. That's the conviction. 
That is the very, very personal and very real application to each and every one of us. Hebrews 12, 14 gives us this command. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're not just to pursue peace with all men, we're to pursue holiness, even holiness with all. As you've heard me say many times, it matters, it matters how we live because our lives affect each other. And in ways that are for good or ill, but we are always affecting, we're always having each one of us, each one of us in our circle of influence, we're always having a rippling effect by our words and our deeds. We must make certain and sure that the rippling effect is for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom in everyone else's lives that we do, that we do have connection with. May God give us the grace to that great and holy end. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how encouraging and how comforting it is to know that the work of your kingdom is exactly that. It is your kingdom and thereby your work. It is what you, Lord, have purposed and what you are progressing in this world of history and time. And it is a work that will never fail. It will never, ever fail. It will accomplish what you have ordained it to accomplish, Father. And we do take great encouragement in that great fact and truth and reality. We also thank you, Father, that your eternal Son, our Lord Jesus, is building his church even right here at Providence Reformed Baptist Church. And that while our numbers may not be in those categories of what so-called church growth experts describe as mega churches, Lord, we say, so what to that? Christ is here. And our Savior and our Lord is here in all the glory of who he is as our Savior and Lord. And he is building and he is growing his church right here. And so, Father, thank you. Thank you for that glorious encouragement and comfort. At the same time, Lord, we do pray. We pray for a greater, a greater growth in our own personal faithfulness to you, a greater growth in our pursuit of holiness, personal holiness, that we will give our all to you, Lord, and what we know you've called us to be and do as a people of God who do everything to the glory of God. Forgive us for every time we have indeed fallen short of this, for every time that we have sinned and we've made provision for the flesh. But we thank you 
for the repentance that we, that we have the strength to carry out in the spirit and by the work and mediation of our Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray to act on that grace and so to pursue harder this holy life you've called us to wherever we are, wherever we go. These things we earnestly ask for the sake and the honor, for the glory and the praise of your eternal Son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our great King, who is the head of his church. In his name we pray. Amen.